your research and analysis and your efforts to bring out the facts about what was going on in our society, did you encounter any effort to discourage you, to prevent you from bringing out the background of America's involvement in the financing of international communism? Yes, very definitely. Um, for example, uh, when I was at the Hoover Institution, uh, in 1972, I went to Miami Beach to give some testimony before the um, Republican National Committee. And uh, although a congressman had hand-delivered to the wire services this testimony, which was later printed, uh, the wire services refused to transmit it to the newspapers. Then when I got back to the Hoover Institution um, in California, um, I was called into the office of the director and... Uh, I was uh, told in no uncertain terms not to make any more speeches like that and that this information should not be made public. This was the information that we were giving uh, the Soviet Union the technology to develop its war potential? Oh, yes. At that time, we were, in, we were in Vietnam. And as you know, the Soviets were supplying the North Vietnamese. This was 1972. 1972, yes. And, uh, for example, I knew that the Gorky plant, which was built by the Ford Motor Company, the Gorky plant in Russia produces the gas series of vehicles. The gas vehicles had been seen on Ho Chi Minh Trail. We were supplying equipment to the Gorky plant in the middle of the Vietnamese war, and these trucks were being used to carry ammunition supplies, which were killing Americans. Now, I thought this was morally wrong, and I No joke, folks. This is Discussions of Truth. I'm your host, Ian Hamilton Trottier. Follow me on Twitter. Follow me on Instagram. Donate to the program. I-A-N-T-R-O-T-T-I-E-R. Every Wednesday, 5 o'clock, p.m. Eastern Standard Time, out of the Winwood Studio Bunker in the Winwood District of Miami, Florida. That fellow that you just listened to is one Dr. Anthony Sutton of the Stanford Hoover Institute reporting on his research, former research as he is now deceased, of U.S. involvement funding. Oh, yes. U.S. banks, U.S. involvement in funding the Hitler regime. And of course what he's talking about there, the North during the Vietnam War. So, that is the road that led me from being sprayed with a highly controversial chemical a couple years ago here in Miami Beach called Nailed. To combat the Zika virus. Yes, I was led down a road to Dr. Sutton and his research because, coincidence or not, there are no coincidences, the Rockefeller Foundation and group, they own a patent on the Zika virus. That's current. ATCC, type that into your browser, Google, Yahoo, whatever you choose. Yes, they own a patent, the patent, on the Zika virus. They own it. It's a real virus, yes, and that's a very real patent. And the interesting Hegelian swing here is that the pesticide was engineered by the Chevron Chemical Corporation, which was majority-owned and 
likely still is. Correct me if I'm wrong. By the Rockefeller Foundation. Now that vi- that 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 pesticide, Nailid, Dibron, either one. They're both trade names. Same thing. Same product. Is currently manufactured under license by the Vanguard Corporation out of Los Angeles. Vanguard linking to Royal Dutch Shell. Okay, Tony Gosling, Paul Craig Roberts, you name it. The powers that be in whichever groups they operate in, they all control natural resources. And in many ways, they control you and me and the way we live our lives. Gasoline and petroleum, be it oil, is one of the most precious commodities on the planet. And in a sense, anytime you put gas in your car, you are in chains to those people that control the gas fields and that industry. The Rockefellers somehow also have their hands in the medical industry. What's one of the, 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 the what, are, what is one of the best medical schools in the country? University of Chicago, started by the Rockefeller group. So Dr. Sutton goes on in that speech, talking about his book, The Best Enemies Money Can Buy. Hegelian dialectic means bringing opposite sides in, together in conflict. Yet you control both sides of the paradigm. Yeah. So regardless of who wins, you're going to benefit. Right? The best money, the best enemy monies can buy. He goes on to talk about something called, called tetraethyl. Now the tetraethyl additive during World War II is the only gasoline by patent and design, that the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, could operate their planes off of. And that is an American and was an American-owned additive. And I believe the engines in those airplanes were General Motors. I might be wrong on that one. But I know for a fact, as he talks about it, he goes on. I'll try to find that cue for you. He goes on to talk about tetraethyl. Now here is... The link. Tetraethyl is also a listed ingredient in the pesticide. Dibrom. That was sprayed over the Miami Beach and Windwood population to combat the Zika virus. What a show today. This is Discussions of Truth. I know I mentioned it before, but boy, it's worth mentioning again. Because in a day and age of fake news... You need to vet out the crap that you get on your TV screen or on your in your in your in your audio device. Vet it out. Because in many ways you're being you're being brainwashed. You're not alone. Impeachmassmedia.com. That is where you can donate to this program. I host, and I produce. Why do I do this? Because I know that you need to learn and hear some of the crap, and most of the crap, that I'm researching and discovering. And this was by invitation, mind you. Okay? This was by invitation. Impeachmassmedia.com, iantrache.com, either one of those links right back to me. And we'll get into let me best let me first mention uh, Best Natures. They're a, 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 a an organic company out of Canada that kindly sends my previous guests a care package. They have wonderful organic soaps. And let me get into uh, let me get into some uh, future guests here before we bring on our guest for today. Cynthia McKinney's a former guest on the program, six-term U.S. Congresswoman. She talks much about this concept of the notion, which is a real, it's a very reality, it's very real, the deep state. Again, again, those are the tentacles that lead back to 
the natural resources that society feeds off of and those that control those resources. Okay, yes, I keep bringing that name up again. The Rockefeller, they did donate the land that the U.N. stands on in Manhattan. Okay, and what a donation. Such a, so, such philanthropy, philanthropy, right? Such wonderful giving. <laughs> yeah, well, wonderful giving uh, group. Okay, uh, New York Times bestselling author Tom Hartman. Uh, Talkers Magazine ranks Tom as the number one progressive talk show host in America with a cumulative audience of 6.5 million, exceeding the TV audience uh, listeners. For nine years, he hosted an evening TV program that was first carried by Free Speech TV and later picked up by RT, that's Russian television, out of Washington. He holds a PhD in homeopathy and a master's degree in herbal medicine, as well as an honorary PhD from Goddard College in Vermont, where he was a visiting instructor. He is also a four-time Project Censored. Yes, Project Censored has joined this program. Award winner, New York Times bestselling author again, of 24 books in print, not all New York Times bestsellers. He invented the Hunters in a Farmer's World, reframed for ADHD, and wrote five books on the subject. The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. Coming your way July 10th. Broken, Leon R. Walker Jr., Command Master Chief of the Navy, I believe. Leon R. Walker writes a compelling story of a disadvantaged African-American youth from Cleveland, Ohio, overcoming socioeconomic challenges. Walker found a way to blossom serving the country he loved in the U.S. Navy. June 26th. And author, journalist, and talk show host Alexis Brooks excels in covering metaphysics, spirituality, and new thought concepts. She has spent years exploring consciousness, human potential, and deeper characteristics of what is perceived as reality. The bottom line of this show, my tagline as I end each show, is be awesome. Now, these are two people that have done awesome things in their life. June, that's June 19th. June 5th, Oxford University lecturer Dr. Younghei Chi claims in his new book, Alien Visitations and the End of Humanity, that an extraterrestrial species is inhabiting the planet and actively crossbreeding in an attempt to create a hybrid species worth of counteracting the coming destruction and alteration of climate chain. change. Excuse me. Yes, he lectures in Korean, I understand, at Oxford. He'll be joining uh, the program June 5th. So we're starting off the month with, with uh, Younghae Chi. Author of 20 books, public speaker, currently based in the Isle of Wight in England. He's lectured in over 25 countries and is known to lecture for up to 10 hours. Don't think he'll be doing that on Winwood Radio here. He's a former BBC employee. Ike is considered a global leader in addressing a movement known as New Age Conspiracism. Yes, David Ike will be joining Discussions of Truth. By Ian Trottier on Winwood Radio next week. Okay, now, last week, if you didn't hear the show, we had quite, we actually had a double header. We started the show off with award winning journalist Tanya Rashid. Okay, and Tanya produces uh, for PBS NewsHour. Uh, she's also been part of Al Gore's Global TV Network, CNN International, Al Jazeera, National Geographic, uh, graduate of UCLA, and her master's from Columbia University in New York City. Born in Saudi Arabia, Tanya Rashid. We, and, 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 and after that, we had John Barber. He's basically the, the grandfather. He's regarded as the grandfather of reality TV, something called Real People that he produced. He won five Emmys. He joined the program uh, last week in our kickoff. That was at 3 p.m. And then at 5 p.m., uh, we followed up with uh, Dr. Wayhawk Soon, uh, commonly known as Willie, of the Harvard-Smithsonian Institute. Uh, he combined with Hal Shirtliff of the Constitution, Camp Constitution. Both of them talked about Agenda 21. We didn't get too much into Agenda 21. We spoke more about climate change and Dr. Uh, Soon's uh, take on climate change. 
which is uh, which is not mainstream, by the way. So check that out. Please do that off of iantrachier.com. Uh, and uh, and then after uh, Dr. Soon, I followed up with the, uh, the show followed up with Ambassador Otto von Fagenblatt. Uh, and he he addressed uh, the the crisis in in Venezuela. So that was the lead up to to to, to uh, last week and this week. This week we are joined by former tenured. Keep in mind, I say former tenured, former tenured professor of communications at the Florida Atlantic University. He was dismissed. Uh, he was dismissed. Uh, in 2016 for his views on conspiracy theories and false flags perpetrated by elements within uh, and of deep-seated facets of the U.S. government. The grounds were a conflict of interest. That's what he was released from. In 2018, Tracy filed an appeal at the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit with his civil rights attorney. James Tracy, Ph.D., will be joining, uh, joining the program momentarily. However, before we bring James on, we're going to have a few moments with Jeremy Hans. I will be right back with Jeremy. guest on the program jeremy hans jeremy how are you i'm doing good how are you doing doing fantastic so now it's been it's been over a year since uh since you since you initially joined the program and i appreciate you coming back on uh mm -hmm. on discussion of truth we, last time we addressed a crisis in uh bangladesh um yeah. and uh and, and 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 i think that this we're today today we're gonna do a different spin on 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 a recent story uh, well, uh, uh, more of a recent story for you, and and that is that is that is uh, um, what's happening uh, with uh, the suit. The Sioux tribe of Montana has has resurrected uh, a, a a a buffalo, a, a, the buffalo species uh, in Montana. Can you tell us tell us about what what you've discovered there? Sure. Yeah. So this is uh, this is a much happier story, which is nice <laughs> to talk about. Um, so what, what's really going on is, is a kind of a, a revolution around um, Native American tribes in America, uh, in the U.S. and in Canada, uh, starting to bring back buffalo onto tribal lands. 
And when I say bring back buffalo in tribal lands, I don't mean uh, so. So Native American tribes have for a long time had buffalo that are in sort of commercial herds, okay. sort of more like cattle herds that are used for food and other things. But these are uh, it's a new effort to bring conservation herds and herds. In other words, having a buffalo that would be basically ranging on large tracts of land um, and doing their ecosystem services that they do and basically being a part of the tribe and the community and the land itself in a, in a, in a sense of slowly bringing the buffalo back to the prairies uh, and the west of North America. That's excellent. So now, now obviously, the, the, the buffalo are... Um or a, a, they were dominant before, uh, as as the Western expansion took place. What are mm-hmm. what are some of the, the, the what are some of the qualities? What are the, what are some of the importances um, that the that the that the the buffalo have on the ecology of of of, of the system? Uh, and how do they how are they benefiting uh, the, the, the 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 tribes there? Sure. Well, I think a, a really easy way to think about it is is by the time you know. Uh, European settlers uh, came into America. The buffalo was the largest living land animal in North America. So, you know, an animal that size and and, and in the sheer numbers, uh, I think it's been estimated about 20 to 30 million uh, bison uh, during that time. It was, they, they dominate the ecology really by, by doing all sorts of things. You know, they roll in the mud, they stir up the dirt, they spread seeds when they are moving around and they get it in their hairs and, you know, that's throwing seeds. They're really an intricate part of the grassland ecosystem. You know, they were preyed on by, by wolves. Uh, you know, uh, perhaps their, you know, their young can be preyed on by coyotes. And, of course, when a buffalo dies, it's eaten by all sorts of different, different animals. And then, so, so they play a large part in the ecology. And through that, they've also created this, uh, you know, as I think many of us know, a very strong, deep, and spiritual relationship with a number of Native American tribes who really depended on the buffalo and viewed the buffalo as a spiritual sort of partner, brother uh, figure for much of their uh, history. Are, are, they, are, they, are they in tune with the buffalo as far as predicting um, certain things about life? Whereas, if, 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 have you been privy to any of that? If a buffalo reacts one way or the other, that's a signal that, that, that this might be coming to the tribe or anything, anything of that type of nature. Sure. I'm not, I'm not, sh- you know, I don't want to, I, I don't know too much about yeah. how deep or how different the spirituality goes, but I mean, from what I've heard from, you know, and I myself am not Native American. I don't have this, 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 uh, long history in this background, but from what I've heard from tribal members, you know, there is the, the buffalo plays a very important symbol and played a huge role in, in both their practical daily sustenance, but also in their spiritual, in their in their myths, um, in their stories, in the culture and in, and in the way that they're the, they, they view sort of the philosophy with which they view um, their place in the world. I think. The, and so I think in many ways, this desire to bring the buffalo back is to is to reconnect the tribes, reconnect, especially the young people with this symbol that they had throughout their entire history as, as a culture, um, to reconnect those strands and, and bring back sort of that spiritual and practical component in, in alignment again. Now, it, what about the local or the, the state, um, you know, the U.S. Uh, uh, government in, in, in the federal government or state government there in, in, in Montana? How, how is this uh, how is this being received by um, by that uh, that establishment? Sure. Well, I think, I mean, uh, the, the short, easy answer is that the Montana government was very much against allowing the tribes to do this. Um, there's concerns about brucellosis, which is a disease that is a cattle disease that went over into the bison herds uh, like 100 years ago. And so now the bison herd often will carry this disease. It's not devastating to bison, but it is devastating to cattle. But there's the, the chances of it actually going from a buffalo herd or bison herd to a cattle herd are, are very, very slim, though it is possible. So there's this paranoia, I guess you could call it, that you know, bringing back a buffalo is going to bring this disease back into cattle ranching and that that could be devastating. And there is you know, legitimate concern, but there's also a certain, I think, overreaction to this. Uh, so the Montana government really tried to stop this, and then it went all the way to the Supreme Court in Montana, where uh, it was eventually allowed that these uh, that these tribes could go and get wow. these what are called genetically pure these these bison that have never been crossbred with cattle from Yellowstone, bring them into Montana, 
and you know build this cultural really wild herds that we are now starting to see spring up and perhaps sort of rejuvenate a, a lot of uh, the ecosystem uh, but also I think uh, you know the, the tribal cultures as well and was the bison were, 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 or excuse, were, were buffalo at one point uh, close to extinction was it how bad was it it was bad <laughs> we're really uh, lucky so the bison, I think the, the lowest number they got down to was around 500. Wow. Now, 500 might sound like a lot when you think of some species that are down to, you know, now just a few dozen. But at the time, you know, they're talking about an animal that went from 20 to 30 million to 500 within a few decades. And this was largely because of sort of the, the American manifest destiny, this, this, this pushing settlers into what, what were essentially Native American tribal territories. Um, and then the government put a one of their plans in order to devastate the Native American peoples in this during this you know conflict or what we could even describe as sort of an, a war um, was to de decimate the bison you know so the buffalo were targeted with the I idea that if you destroy the buffalo you were destroy the uh, Indian tribes um, and to some extent you know yeah. that kind of worked because uh, killing off all the buffalo did change the culture did change the the ability of the tribes to survive and maintain their way of life. But I think now we're seeing a, a new resurgence of them reclaiming, uh, trying to reclaim that, that kind of lost heritage and that lost connection. Um, and it's a really, you know, it's a, I think it's a really sad part of our history, but I think it's, it's really neat to see these tribes saying, no, you know, we want to bring the buffalo home. We want to bring the buffalo back. We want to establish this connection again to ha have it being passed down generations. And also that from an, like a, like I said earlier, from an ecosystem or conservation uh, environmental glance, this could really renew some of this land. Uh, we could have new growth of prairie, new ecosystems, new predator prey relationships that we just haven't seen uh, in these regions for you know ever since the the buffalo were wiped out. And let, let's put it in perspective versus uh, you're saying that the efforts are also uh, happening in Canada. Is is is, is are, are, are both uh, efforts uh, going well in Canada and the U.S. or is 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 it going better in Canada or is it going better in the U.S.? I think so. The U.S. right now has been the leader in the sense of just a, a number of tribes have actually been able to get genetically uh, pure bison and turn them into conservation herds. There is discussion going on in Canada. I don't believe at this moment that any of the tribes there actually have been able to secure uh, buffalo yet. But there's certainly tribes that are kind of because you have to have certain steps. You have to make sure you have enough land. You have to make sure you know what you're doing. You have to have all these things. And you, then, of course, you have to have the government's permission. Then you have to go to a herd that actually has this genetically pure stock. And then you have to bring it. So this this takes a while. But there is now an agreement between a number of Indian nations to try and bring back the buffalo sort of all over um, the West and uh, of, of both the United States and of Canada. So, you know, uh, in, within a generation or two generations, we might be seeing large-scale herds again that we haven't seen in a hundred years um, of maybe a few thousand to ten thousand animals, and that would be, you know, just I think really exciting. Yeah. Uh, from an environmental standpoint, but also just from you know what a, a, a thrilling thing to be able to see again for humans. <laughs> uh, you know, the the sort of the tourism possibilities would be amazing. I think if you could if you could kind of get that if if that's something that the tribes would be interested in. Right. But. Um, but right now, it's really focused on the culture and, and rebuilding that connection. And and what about Yellowstone? I, what was it Roosevelt that created the initial the Teddy that created Yellowstone as a national park? Are are those numbers uh, increasing there in Yellowstone as well? So Yellowstone has the largest wild population of buffalo in the world of American bison, I should say. Um, we're not, you know, uh, they have the largest population. The problem then there is that basically they can't really have any more. Um, because the bison have basically filled in the niche, they can't, they're, they're ranging out of the park. And what happens when there's a wonderful idea of reseeding populations all around the American West and then just watching what nature does with that. Absolutely wonderful. Uh, now, Jeremy, um, uh, tell us what's, uh, you're currently writing for The Guardian. What's, what's on slate? What have you got on tap here for, for listeners that want to check out more of your work? Sure. I mean, I'm a freelance journalist, so I write for a number of different places. Um, but one thing coming up is I'm doing a huge series on insect decline, which is a global terrifying phenomenon, and that's going to be coming out in Manga Bay next month. Um, I'm also going to be doing a, a, a large feature story for The Guardian in the fall on uh, uh, algae blooms, uh, which is something I know in Florida you've dealt with. So that'll be coming out probably in the fall sometime, and I'll be visiting a few different sites around the world. Um, and then I'm working on a book, so that's, but that's not for another year or so when that would come out. 
Congratulations. Ladies and gentlemen, Jeremy Hans. Jeremy, thanks for making the time to come on the program again. No problem. Happy to do it. So the Guardian, if you if you if you if you simply if you simply go into type Jeremy Hans as it sounds, Guardian, you find you find Jeremy's articles uh, uh, listed uh, listed right there. A, a simple Google a query will will uh, will will yield those results. Um, I will be right back with. James Tracy. Enjoy a little me- Megadeth. Megadeth, yes. We'll go with the Megadeth route. We go a little enjoy a little Megadeth.
This is Winwood Radio. You've tuned into Discussions of Truth. Every Wednesday, 5 o'clock, I'm right here bringing you a very compelling story. Now we have on the line with us a former tenured professor, former tenured professor of communications. He is a communications scholar, Florida Atlantic University. James Tracy joins us. James, how are you today? Fine, thanks. Thanks for joining uh, Winwood Radio James, tell listeners a little bit about you. Well, uh, I um, graduated uh, with my Ph.D. from University of Iowa in uh, 2002, and uh, I went on the tenure track. I uh, was hired by Florida Atlantic University here in Boca Raton uh, shortly after that, 2002, and I was um, a professor there up until late 2015 and uh, was terminated from my position in, in December of, of that year. Uh, I had uh, secured tenure in 2008, and I was in the uh, School of Communication and Multimedia Studies, which uh, is primarily addressing uh, media theory and uh, journalism history and those sorts of things. These were the types of things that I taught, and I was generally trained to teach at, uh, at the graduate level. So media theory, um, you you were terminated. Uh, uh, what was wh- wh- why did the why did Florida Atlantic terminate you? Well, the reason that they that they gave um, ostensibly was that I failed to fill out paperwork reporting my blog, my personal blog which I had had for several years and uh, which had received some notoriety. Of course, it was something that was featured on Anderson Cooper's CNN program wow. and uh, some of the regional media here and so forth in, in quite a derogatory way. They were upset because I was simply criticizing the media coverage of the Sandy Hook massacre and subsequent to that, the Boston Marathon bombing and a handful of other things. We really cultivated quite a readership there too with the blog. I mean, we had thousands of readers and uh, it really became kind of a, a, a more or less a, cult, a collective intelligence uh, uh, outlet and that people went there and shared information and discussed uh, these, uh, these topics, these events and things. And, so it, uh, it, it uh, became much better than I ever thought it would be, and um, it was something that I did in an extracurricular sort of way uh, and, and uh, was not in any way scholarly, and uh, it was something that the I think the Board of Trustees at uh, Florida Atlantic and uh, some of the donors and things like that did not like. They did not uh, care for the negative publicity that was shed on it by the, uh, the major you know, corporate media. And so they ultimately sought to uh, to get rid of me, to sever their ties with me. Uh, so this, uh, you know, they terminated me in in January of 2016, officially, and I filed a civil rights lawsuit a few months later, and that uh, is presently on appeal uh, in um, the 11th Circuit uh, Federal Court of Appeals in Atlanta, and we're awaiting a decision at this time. So this was a private blog. Did, did did any of those did any of those opinions that came out in the blog uh, 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 relay into what was being instructed in those FAU classes? Well, no. I mean, there, you know, there's always a, a bit of overlap with what uh, academics do in a sort of extracurricular way. And uh, what they what they do officially, but it's nothing. You know, those observations and things like that on the blog are not things that I taught. I never really touched upon things like uh, Sandy Hook or you know, mass shootings, what have you, uh, in, in any of my classes. I did teach a class on, um, on called the Culture of Conspiracy which addressed uh, from a scholarly point of view uh, how conspiracy theory and the very term uh, has been treated uh, in our contemporary history since the, you know, the mid to late 1960s uh, with the assassinations of the Kennedys and things like that. So no doubt uh, some of the material that I, I uh, took on, uh, you know, once I had tenure and so forth was somewhat controversial, but at the same time, tenure is something that is supposed to protect academics from, uh, 
any type of reproach that might be visited upon them by the board of trustees. And, you know, this was something that the uh, 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 was instituted in the American Academy in the early 20th century to do exactly that. But one of the things that we needed to address in litigation, one of the uh, the things that FAU's defense team kept bringing up was was the idea that oh well uh, you know you're teaching uh, you, you're uh, teaching what you blog about and I had to keep emphasizing that well that that's not the case at all uh, you know what goes into a scholarly article or conference paper is totally different. Uh, from you know from from what someone blogs about anyone can blog i didn't need any sort of special uh you know training to 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 start a blog uh, pretty much uh, anyone can do it that's literate and that can uh, put a few paragraphs together so this was uh, one of their major things they clung to in their defense to construe what i was doing on the blog as research uh, and uh, it was it might have been research in a pedestrian sort of way, but it was not scholarly research. And in fact, the, the district court judge, uh, Robin Rosenberg, here in, uh, up in Palm Beach, which actually she threw out most of our case, and she threw out the civil rights dimension of the case. She did agree with the with our argument that I was a, a private citizen. Uh, who was commenting on matters of public concern. That's one concession that she did give us uh, in, uh, in court, one of the very few. It sounds like, it, it, it sounds like uh, free thinking, which is what any uh, institution of education, certainly a university, should be promoting. What was Anderson Cooper's take on your blog? Well, that was in early, uh, that was in January of 2013 when I was featured on his program, I think two or three nights in a row. I, I forget now, but uh, CNN actually sent uh, uh, a reporting crew to uh, campus at FAU and kind of tried to chase me around. I wasn't on campus that day, so they decided to come to my, come to my house and film outside the house. And I think it was an attempt to sort of frame me as this, you know, this sort of uh, public enemy or, or hmm. menace or, you know, equate me as uh, as being kind of the equivalent of a sex offender simply because hmm. I had uh, written these, uh, you know, these critical things about the news reportage of, of Sandy Hook on, on the blog and uh, and got quite a response. So uh, his take was generally that I should not be that I should be fired. Ultimately, I thought I think that was the gist of of his uh, of his program. That uh, this is a taxpayer-funded university, and he's um, he's raising questions that shouldn't be raised. You know, this uh, this event at Sandy Hook and what have you is it's settled. Uh, we reported on it. Uh, it shouldn't be questioned, especially by someone uh, who uh, who who is an academic, who is a professor. So that was generally the gist of it to, to really, I think, uh, CNN, as well as uh, some other, you know, pretty major publications seeking to uh, put pressure on FAU to terminate me, or at least to discipline me, which they ended up doing in, in early 2013 for something that was completely unrelated uh, to uh, – uh, you know, to my to my classroom uh, teaching or anything. You know, I've I've always gotten great reviews from my students, and I've always kept up with my research and uh, and what have you. But it had to do with the idea that I did not have a proper uh, disclaimer on my blog, uh, not to their liking. So they wanted the fashion one for me, uh, and uh, and and what I had on there, which I had on there from the start when I began the blog in early 2012. They wanted something that they uh, could write and uh, that could be fashioned by the university attorney. Sure. And so that's that's what they pressured me to put on the blog, get to a fix on the blog. They put a, a letter of uh, discipline in my, my personnel file and said that in order to take that letter out, we want for you to put this particular disclaimer that we've written on your blog. I said, okay, fine. So we negotiated a settlement. Um, it turns out we found out in discovery after the termination and so forth that they never actually took the letter uh, uh, out of my mm. personnel file. Even though I put the disclaimer on the blog, mm. they didn't take the take the letter out. So they didn't even keep up their, their side of the bargain there. So, James, 
what rights do you feel have been infringed on your own personal rights? Well, uh, uh, ultimately, freedom of speech. The the uh, federal case that we brought uh, involves uh, my civil right to to free speech as a as a private uh, citizen. The blog itself was not anything that was uh, funded by the university. I was not paid to, you know, to 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 run the blog. It was uh, largely a, a labor of love. Uh, it's not anything that I cultivated research from, called research from, uh, in order to uh, put together scholarly articles or anything of the like. And it's nothing I taught in the classroom. So this was something that I was doing on my own time. And um, this is what I was fired for. And I think that that's how it was, you know, really covered in the press, more or less. Some of the journalists that contacted me essentially said, oh, well, it looks as if they, they even almost used the term pretext themselves. That it looks like this is a pretext that they, that they uh, presented in order to, uh, to, ha- to terminate you um, so in, again in, in late, uh, late 2015. So that's really, I mean, in a nutshell, um, what, uh, what we are arguing in the, uh, in, in the federal suit. And I, and I think, and, 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 yeah, just, just, just as an appendage to that, um, you know, the way that the, uh, judge threw out, uh, five of the six counts in our suit, uh, the jury had a very limited amount. This was decided by a jury trial here in, in, in district, federal district court here in South Florida. Um, but the way that it was presented to the jury, it was very limited, and circumscribed and the whole civil rights dimension, as I mentioned earlier, was taken out of the, uh, out of the whole, uh, uh, case. So there were a lot of things, a lot of evidence that we were prevented from actually, uh, presenting in the, uh, uh it, it, to the jury, uh, to the court. And we were really more or less fighting with, uh, with one hand tied behind our back. Uh, given what we were allowed to work with. And that's, that is what our argument is before the Court of Appeals at present. Do you feel that your case should be echoed as a possible threat to freedom of speech nationally? Yeah, I do, uh, particularly for academics, uh, but uh, also for public employees in general uh, who, uh, you know, because so many of us now are online and uh, that's another thing that came up and I think was kind of fleshed out in the case. What constitutes blogging? Well, if you've got a Facebook account or you've got a Twitter account, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a a, a blog where you are uh, posting news articles or the equivalent. Microblogging is, uh, you know, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram, all of these things really constitute public expression. And I, I must admit, you know, I, I don't do an awful lot of uh, anything on Facebook, but I do uh, observe the comments and so forth from my cohorts. Many of my Facebook f- 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 friends are academics, and they're posting anti-Trump stuff left and right. You know? Sure, right. Uh, right, right. Right next to their bios that say, I am a professor at such and such university. Now that's all fine. It could be anti-Obama or whatever the case may be, but they're they're taking part in political speech, sometimes quite vehemently, uh, and it's right alongside their bio as as being an academic at a frequently a, a taxpayer-funded uh, university. So, you know, they could, if they got on the wrong side of their administration, they could be called out as well. You know, it, 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 based upon the precedent that this case sets. Let's get into. So I think it's a very yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I just think it's very dangerous. Let's get into some of the nuts and bolts just briefly uh, so that listeners understand uh, uh, what you are blogging about. We, we've got uh, – you talk about Trump, and we've, we've got this kind of rampant hashtag to, for uh, uh, to talk, you know, Twitter uh, uh, fake news. Okay, so, so, so you took, you take a, you took a, 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 a non-mainstream view on Sandy Hook – Tell us about your views in regards to that massacre that you were blogging about, as from from a media theorist, being a scholar in media theory. What was your view that happened there? Well, when it initially uh, took place, I um, I think my wife mentioned it. Um, 
on December 14th, I recall, and I didn't really uh, pay it any heed. But then I began looking at it more closely because it just received so much press attention. And uh, the more I looked at it, the more questions I had. And um, with, with regard to what we were being presented with by the news media, there just seemed to be a lot of omissions of very important information. Uh, there were, was uh, evidence that uh, many of the emergency responders were being held back from the, from the scene, which didn't make a great deal of, uh, of sense. Uh, there were a number of things with regard to the emergency response in general, but um, one of the paramount things for me was looking at uh, the press conference uh, the day following the uh, this, this mass shooting event uh, by uh, H. Wayne Carver, who was the uh, the, the the coroner and uh, the chief medical officer of the state of Connecticut. And he had trouble really answering a lot of fairly basic questions about the the casualties and the mass shooting, the children, and, and so forth. And I um, looked at, the, at, at the, the press conference with disbelief, and then I began transcribing it, and it made even less sense and seemed even more, more suspect. So um, that's really – I think that was the – Second uh, piece that I wrote about uh, about, about Sandy Hook, and I, that's something that was republished on a number of uh, other websites, including Global Research, and um, th- that kind of went around the world. So that's I think probably the uh, article that got the most notoriety. Do you- um, yep. I also I. I um, also, I went on to uh, do a follow-up article to that about a week later, yeah. uh, remarking that um, these um, these mass shooting drills use uh, what are referred to as crisis actors, and there's uh, an acting troop in Colorado that call themselves call themselves, I believe, the crisis acting troop or the equivalent. And I, I mentioned that uh, in the uh, in in a follow up article in passing, and I was not I did not make the argument that well there are you know uh, there are crisis actors at Sandy Hook and and so on and so forth. I said that the Department of Homeland Security uses these crisis actors in these drills. Uh, now, is there a possibility that um, that they were used at Sandy Hook in the event that that uh, that you know there are elements of that particular uh, mass shooting event that were superficial? I don't know, but it's worth pondering. Well, the media took that and ran with it and said that I and actually, you know, they wanted me to admit that I was making this claim that there were crisis actors at Sandy Hook, and I was adamant saying that I never said that, I never claimed that. Um, I said in, 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 in examining the various possibilities of how this event went down, that's something that we might wish to consider. If we want to question our government, which is what journalists are supposed to be doing to begin with, right. uh, we might want to consider things like that. Now, is it possible, being in the state of Florida, that if this theory justly applies to Sandy Hook, that it could also be applied to what happened a year ago in the Parkland shootings? There's uh, there's certainly that possibility. Um, I think there are a number of, uh, you know, uh, bloggers, media critics, and so forth that have uh, come out and uh, questioned that event as well. And there are a number of, uh, you know, idiosyncrasies in that uh, in that particular event, I've not looked at it uh, quite as closely, but uh, it's certainly something that should be, uh, you know, should be considered, uh, should be scrutinized. But you know, the, one of the differences I see uh, between uh, Parkland, uh, you know, which took place uh, six years, roughly six years after, or five and a half years after the uh, Sandy Hook shooting, is the uh, degree of clampdown on the social media, uh, the likes of uh, YouTube and um, other social media platforms like Facebook and, and Twitter, where people are being, people who bring up these types of questions are simply being shut down. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can't even, yeah, they can't even, uh, even uh, question or scrutinize these events. 
And the reasoning is that, well, you, we can't be, uh, you know, we, we, we cannot uh, be attacking the victims and what have you. Well, that's not the point, really. The point is to uh, to uh, scrutinize uh, the, the, the particular events themselves and their various facets. Um, I, I think that is that's generally been used to go after anyone, any sort of detractor. Uh, any anyone who's kind of questioning the, um, the the particular elements of the events and the coverage and uh, some of the um, some of the kind of omissions and uh, real problems uh, with uh, with these types of, of events. And in addition, uh, kind of the rationale behind them. You know, why are these uh, why are these events uh, being carried out? Why is it that my my children, for example, have to go to school and, and live in a you know be in a state of fear? Uh, when there are uh, in these code red drills, uh, and um, is this is is there something more sinister in terms of kind of social engineering behind this rather than uh, just the safety of our children? I mean, on its face, it's it's of course you know these are safety measures. I remember having fire drills and things like that when I was going to grade school as well. Uh, but now this combined with uh, the kind of crisis environment that we see uh, on, on on the media, the 24-hour uh, news cycle when these events do take place, they combine those sorts of things, and uh, there's a there's this kind of this element uh, of fear that I think is being uh, instituted on on young people today, a kind of crisis environment. I'm not sure exactly why that is, and one could kind of ruminate on that, but uh, I don't think it's a very positive development in, in, in our sort of broader kind of public sphere. No, I think you're right, and I think I think it 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 plays into um, a, a a a larger larger hand, perhaps that that that, that is that is controlling the uh, the 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 ability, perhaps, uh, of speech free speech. Have, have are you familiar with? Uh, former Reagan administration uh, official Charlotte Eiserbit. Uh, Charlotte Eiserbit, yeah, huh? Yes. Okay. Yeah, she 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 has a, a a different angle, but again, it's 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 kind of a a larger machine that is kind of controlling education and what is being taught uh, in schools, and 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 I think that your your case your case in some to some degree parallels that because. Because that's that's why you are there is to get your students, and of course this was being done in your private time, personal times, time. But but that's essentially what uh, what what any American or any human being should have is that freedom to think and question authority. So James, as we close out, tell listeners what's the next step for you and 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 your lawsuit against uh, FAU. Well, as I mentioned, uh, is presently was appealed to the uh, 11th Circuit, the Federal Court of Appeals for our area of the country in Atlanta back in August of last year. Uh, the typical uh, regimen there is that there's the appeal is filed, the uh, the the defendant or respondent in this case. Uh, Ford Atlantic and individual defendants uh, have the opportunity to respond in a response brief, and then we have the the, the appellant. We have the final say. Uh, so all of those uh, those briefs were filed uh, last fall, and um, we are just uh, awaiting a word from the court as to whether or not we might have oral argument. Uh, the court only gives uh, about 1% of cases oral arguments uh, the opportunity to, to, to appear before the justices, a panel of three judges. Uh, if not, they will uh, they will just, I believe, decide one way or another with regard to the uh, the worthiness of our appeal. I, I feel very fortunate uh, for the legal team that uh, assembled around the case and understood the importance of it. Uh, to, to have that degree of expertise. I don't think that uh, we could have done a, a better job than, than was done uh, than, than the legal team did with regard to the appeal briefs. I, I thought they were just uh, just extremely impressive. So I don't want to be overly optimistic, but uh, I, I think that this is an important case. And it's, if it's not overturned, it, it um, you know could be a real threat to, uh, to freedom of speech in this country. Uh, for anyone that has a salaried position and, and wants to uh, to comment freely about uh, matters of public concern uh, on their own free time. 
Excellent. Very well said, James. Now, if the if the door at Florida Atlantic University reopened, would you would you enter that or, or look to teach elsewhere? Well, no, that's uh, that's primarily what we're asking. We're asking that uh, I be reinstated. Uh, and uh, if it, uh, if that were the case, I I think I'd uh, I'd be happy to go back and uh, to go back and enter the classroom. Wow! I um, Noble. I I really I don't know how long I'm ultimately going to going to stay or anything, but um, I I do miss teaching. I do miss uh, research, and um, you know all of those things uh, immensely. I mean that's what I uh, I've spent the last 20 years of my life doing from the late 90s up until uh, 2015, 20 you know late 2015. So. It's something I would still like to get back uh, and be able to do. You know, I'm settled here. My my family is settled here in, in South Florida, uh, so we're not going anywhere uh, in the uh, immediate or foreseeable future. Uh, and um, you know, we're settled right by FAU, so I would be happy to uh, happy to return. Ladies and gentlemen, communications scholar, former tenured professor of communications at Florida Atlantic University, James Tracy. James, do you have any final? Final comments uh, for listeners. Well, I I think that uh, in this day and age, you know, and during uh, the so-called war on terror, uh, you know, the the war bump, the war drums are beating uh, in in the Middle East now as well. Uh, it's more important than ever to have uh, to have free speech and to be able to comment uh, on, uh, on our nation's uh, foreign policy and also domestic policy and what's going on in, in terms of, uh, you know, what, uh, what, what types of, of, of things and agendas our public institutions that we pay for undertake. Uh, that's the essence, I, I believe, of democracy and of uh, free society is to be able to have that speech, to be able to speak out and comment on those, those matters of public concern. So that's why I, I believe this case uh, is, uh, is of such significance. Uh, there are other cases as well, but I think that um, you know, it's, uh, it, it's very important because these are crucial, crucial times, uh, more crucial than we perhaps uh, appreciate at times. Excellent. Well said. Thank you, uh, James. Thank you for joining uh, Winwood Radio and Discussion to Truth. We look forward to uh, keeping tabs on, on the development of your case. Okay, great. Thank you for re- reaching out. James Tracy, communication scholar again, former a tenured professor at Florida Atlantic University. Um, I'll be right back with some closing thoughts. Megadeth Peace Cells. Listen to the lyrics in that song. What do you mean I can be the president of the United States of America? Is that, is that the idea that any any of us, domestically born, can obtain that office? It's every one of our rights. 
If I if I if I had a last comment, I had a final comment. Uh, I would say something along the lines of what James, Dr. Tracy just said. Raise your voice. Fight for your rights. They're becoming incredibly more, incredibly more threatened by the year. What was was the foundation of the United States coincidence? Was it coincidence? Ask yourself: Was it coincidence that this country is, exists? You think it was a coincidence? Perhaps was it coincidence? No. It was people just like Tracy, just like you, just like me, just like. Just like the people that formed that group, Megadeth, that are fighting for the right, for free speech, for free thinking, for freedom of religion, for freedom of press. Who cares what you say? Say whatever you like. It hurts somebody's feelings? Too bad. You know, hey, you know, at the local playground as a kid, at least me, it was like sticks and stones break my bones. But words? No, they can never hurt you. So who cares what you write about? Who cares? An opinion piece. Prove it otherwise in, in the court of law. Nonpartisan. Yeah, it's becoming filthy, people. It's becoming disgustingly filthy. Author, 20 bucks. Public speaker based in Isle of Wight, England. Lectured in over 25 countries. Known to lecture after 10 hours straight. He's a former BBC employee, David Ike. Joins the program next week. This has been Discussions of Truth. I'm your host, as I always am on a weekly basis, Ian Trottier. Follow me on Twitter. Follow me on Instagram. I-A-N-T-R-O-T-T-I-E-R. Donate to the program. Impeach mass media. Stop mass media. Okay? Be an independent thinker. Because you are an individual. You are an individual. And you have as much right as anybody else out there to say whatever you want. And until next week with David, be awesome.